listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Josh Warner, who has been working on making improvements to the Rock programming language, particularly around the parser and formatter. We start out talking about syntax and code formatting, but after some plot twists, the conversation ends up on AI and the future of programming itself. And now, syntax and the future of programming. Josh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, of course. Um, Happy to be here. First of all, I, I want to thank you for all your awesome contributions to the Rock Compiler. <laughs> it's really awesome having you on the team. Of course, uh, it's been fun. And so you're somebody who who kind of arrived and already seemed to have a lot of knowledge about how to like make parsers better and fixing like weird edge cases and also about uh, like the code formatter. So I'm wondering, like, how did you get into that stuff? Like, uh, what's your past experience with it? How did you you know become knowledgeable about it? That's somewhat of a long story. Uh, I started very early with software stuff. My dad was a software engineer. I was in elementary school making uh, Visual Basic applications and trying nice. to, to build games and whatnot. I had a few internships, went to college with a, a CS degree, did some work at smaller companies, and then started working at Dropbox, where I'm currently. Uh-huh. My opinions are my own. I don't speak for my employer. Sure. <laughs> Uh, and through most of that time, I've been very interested in low-level things, making things performant and snappy. One of my first kind of tastes of that was probably in high school, trying to write a compiler from mathematical expressions. So, you know, sine of x times 3 or something to x87, uh, you know, floating point machine code. Oh, wow. X87. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> X86, but you know, using the floating point stack on the processor and, and so on. Right. I, yeah. I just, I just forgot about the term X87. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a whole thing. Okay. So, so low level like performance stuff with like floats. And, and I've always enjoyed uh, compilers, programming languages, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Have long had a, a dream and many different attempts at creating a programming language of my own. You know, as any good software sure. engineer does. <laughs> I had many previous attempts at writing parsers and ah. you know, little bits of compiler stuff. Nothing nearly as fancy as Rock, or uh-huh. nothing anywhere close to as fancy as Rock is in terms <laughs> of the, the whole compilation pipeline. Gotcha. Okay, so so you'd like tried implementing your own parsers and like I'm guessing you tried various different techniques because there's a lot of different ways you can make a parser. And so you, you've kind of got the like school of hard knocks of learning. Uh, it's, it's not like you sat down and like did a course on parsers necessarily, or maybe you did uh, separately. <laughs> yeah. There was some time in college actually where I ran across this amazing intro to recursive descent parsers. Okay. That was all implemented in Pascal. And, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is a very old course or old, yeah. old, it was, you know, web page or someone walking you through making a recursive descent parser or something, something about, uh, parsers aren't magic and let me show you. Ah, sure. Okay. And that was kind of the moment where things really clicked for me. That's like, ah, oh, okay. This is how the thing that I used to think was absolute magic you know, the right. inside of the C++ compiler. Like that's just a thing you have on your computer. You don't, you don't build that. How would you go about building that? Yeah. And I think recursive descent parsers in particular are just so easy to get started with and and like kind of fully grok the entirety of the parsing system. That was my gateway drug, I'll say. Yeah. You know, I, for me, that was a a parser combinators was just like, Mm. I had always like, I'd heard about like, okay, you do the lexing and then you do the parsing. And I was like, okay, the lexing I get, because you can do a lexing with like a regular expression if you want. I mean, it's just like, okay, you've got a bunch of tokens and like we care about some of them and some of them we want to throw away like a bunch of spaces we don't need to care about every single space necessarily uh, i guess unless you're doing indentation sensitivity which you know <laughs> imagine <laughs> language that cares about that but then you know once you got to the actual parsing stuff it's like i have all these tokens and now i want to turn them into like a tree like oh now it's now it's complicated but when i first encountered parser combinators it was like oh there's no separate step it's just like well, you, you want to do one of these, then you want to do one of these, then you want to like surround, I want to look for, you know, surround these in parentheses and that's just a combinator. And hmm. I guess it sort of matched my mental model because it felt like I'm sort of using a tree-like structure to describe how I want to end up with a tree-like structure. Mm-hmm. So there was that, yep. that kind of symmetry between the two. And so that was what I first made the parser for rock. I definitely gravitated towards that for two reasons. One is it was what I knew how to do. And two is that 
Elm does that for its parsing and Elm has really nice error messages and also a really fast parser. And so I was actually, to be honest, like a little bit nervous about using another, like an alternative technique because I was worried that we might sacrifice one or both. Like it might be slower and it might also potentially be like have worse error messages if you mess something Mm -hmm. up. But I mean, I, I've now seen other languages that do it differently, obviously, and that are still plenty fast. Like Zig certainly has like plenty fast parsing and they do the like lexing and then parsing thing. Their error messages aren't like amazing, but Rusts are really good. And I believe they also do like the traditional like lexing followed by a separate parsing step. So it seems like with their powers combined, there's a way to have it be both fast and have nice error messages. I think these are actually just three completely separate axes for the most part. Interesting. Okay. In fact, the first recursive descent parser that I wrote didn't do any sort of lexing first. Oh, okay. Um, you just operate directly on the characters and yeah. you cause some amount of reparsing of, you know, you first try to parse something as, you know, check if this is an if keyword. And that requires checking mm. if, you know, the next few bytes are if. And if they're not, you have to go back and then reparse that as uh, an identifier, whatever comes next in your precedence tree in the parser. Right. Which is exactly what we do in Rock today. Yeah. And the high-level structure of the code is roughly the same. The main things that change with Alexar are, A, you get to look ahead more, which might make certain things easier. So you can look ahead past comments, for example, very easily. To some degree, these are in a language that's completely ignoring white space. That's not really an issue in the first place, but in Rock, we want to attach and preserve white space for the purposes of uh, the editor. Yeah. And, and, so and the the, uh, the formatter also it cares formatter, about some, yeah. some white space, but not others. Yeah. So when you have a, a Lexer, you can have everything all laid out and in a format that you can really easily check, hey, is the next token after the, you know, this possibly many paragraphs of comment, is that an identifier token or is it uppercase or lowercase and so on? Right. One thing that I hadn't appreciated until we kind of like got into it was that an underappreciated aspect of having a separate lexing step that just turns the you know raw string into a series of tokens is it's useful for doing syntax highlighting of code fragments where you have something where like this comes up in documentation where I want to just show a little yeah. snippet. I want to syntax highlight it, but it, that snippet in and of itself is not valid rock. It's just like a fragment of valid rock, but that's just like what you want in that example. It's just like this little fragment, but you still want to syntax highlight to the best of your ability. Like if should still be colored as a keyword, but if you only have a parser, that's like, I will tell you if this is valid rock or not, you can't do that. Well, you can, uh, you just have to be a lot more <laughs> careful about how you're writing your parser. Okay. That's uh, true. In particular, yeah. It has to be uh, a lot more error tolerant. Yeah. So this is sure. something that uh, tree sitter does very well. Mm, yeah that you you input your grammar in this json format and it will spit out a parser that at least does a decent job of recovering from errors and you know if you you start a function declaration and then leave a hanging brace uh it won't just completely bail out at that step yeah it will know that that is an incomplete function declaration and then it will continue on with parsing the rest of the file true yeah which i guess is something that we are going to probably want at some point anyway, because in the editor, no matter how fancy we get with like structured editing and and stuff like that, all of which I think is very compelling to explore, there's still at the end of the day, paste. (laughs) Like someone can still copy something from a snippet they got from the internet or that someone chatted to them and then maybe they don't copy all of it or maybe they, uh, they try to copy a subset of it and get an invalid subset and they hit paste and now you have something that doesn't parse. But you need to try and you know be as tolerant to that as you can and, and not have it blow up and give people a bad experience. Absolutely. That's a, also something that comes up in the more traditional editor scenario, where, which is what TreeSitter is uh, targeting right. and reparsing code after minimal changes uh, yeah. and being able to parse code even if the user is in the middle of writing their function declaration. Right. want the rest of the file to lose syntax highlighting and, and everything. Which does get into another consideration. This is something I've talked with a couple different people about structured editing and projectional editing and like trade-offs between that and traditional, like you're editing a text buffer and then we are on the fly translating that into some representation that we can then do fancy things on. And one interesting trade-off there is 
if you are doing it in the sort of projectional structured way and you're trying to always have some AST in memory that's like a representation of the structure of the code and trying to use that as your source of truth, there become certain operations that either get harder or else you need to reintroduce some concept of this is temporarily broken. So a classic example of this is, let's say I have two strings in a list back to back. And what I want to do semantically is I want to combine those two strings into one string. Now in a normal text buffer, I just put my cursor, you know, midway through the second string and I just hit backspace a bunch of times until I have, you know, deleted both its opening quote and also the preceding strings closing quote. And now I've combined my two strings. The problem is of course, that in between there, there's a moment where you have and it's syntactically invalid code because you've deleted the opening quote on the second string. So now you have unbalanced quotes. So like what happens when you're in that moment? Does everything explode or not? And that's a useful editing workflow to support no matter what your editor is. So there are you know potential different ways you can handle that. One is you could say, well, if someone backspaces over the opening quote and there's another quote before it, we'll just magically assume that this is exactly what you wanted to do. And, and we'll just combine them for you and get rid of the other closing quote and the comma and, and any spaces in between. But that's not necessarily always what you want to do. And also, there's a lot of different cases like this, where it's not clear that there's, there's necessarily an obvious thing you should do that's exactly what the user wants when you would otherwise have like normally have a temporarily invalid state. And part of the solution there, I think, can be better editing tools, right? You can write a tool that looks at the AST in the editor and says, here, I have two strings. I'm going to call those you know, S1 and S2. And they're somewhere in this list. Please return me a new AST that has S1 and S2 combined as one element in the list. That's a pretty straightforward thing to write. And oh, sure. if you make that low enough effort and have education around that, I think that's a potential solution. Now, that doesn't fix the case for people who are coming to the editor with a strong background in text editing, which is you know, exactly 95, yeah. 99% of developers or whatever. And this is something I've heard is that people who have worked on like projectional editors and structured editors is some people say once they've gotten into it, it's amazing. And they never want to go back. However, also a lot of people just bounce because they get into it and they're like, yep. this is too alien. There's too many surprises. There's too many things that just feel uncomfortable to me. And like, I don't want to deal with it, even if there are benefits. So finding a way to try and get the benefits without having the feelings of discomfort and surprise and unpleasant surprise. I would actually go as far as to say that like, there are even little micro examples of this in common text editors today. One of my personal pet peeves is that in a lot of editors that I've used in my career, if I do an opening brace or an opening paren or an opening bracket, quite often it will auto close it for me incorrectly. Like mm -hmm. it will just put a closing. I'm like, nope, that's not where I wanted that to be. And now I have to do extra work to delete the thing that you inserted incorrectly. And if you just not inserted it in the first place, that would have been more convenient than what you did. <laughs> and that still seems to happen to me today. I think the future here is something similar to GitHub Copilot, where you have a, a machine learning system that is trained on lots of code, and we've taught it how to, when the user is in a partially complete state, which you can get training data for by taking a valid file and cutting out pieces of it, you know, pretending that a user had been in the middle of typing that, and then train it to predict you know, where the closing paren should go. That's interesting. So then it, it becomes somewhat of a like a special case of autocomplete where you're just trying to use training data to predict like what do they probably mean here? And let's just try and do that. And hopefully it's right most of the time. <laughs> and if it's yeah, not, you can fix and, it. Yeah. And you definitely need tools such that the users can fix it. You right. need those to be easy to use and you need education such that a user will actually run into that often enough that they need to learn how to use it. Um, yeah. So you, you don't want actually want your, your AI prediction to be perfect because then users will never learn how to fix it when it's wrong. <laughs> uh, it's sort of the self-driving car problem where if you have a system that mostly works, you know, except for that 1% of time where you really want to be in control. Uh, and if users never learn to, to distinguish those times when it's important to be in control and like, you know, how to control their vehicle. Right. And that can also be a problem of, I'm sure there's some AI term for this uh, or machine learning term for this, where you have a sort of self-reinforcing training set that like degrades over time. Because for example, let's say that you got this initial training set and you're like, cool, 
we know like this is probably what this person meant. So let's start suggesting it. And it's often correct so frequently that people don't bother to try and like edit it and fix it. And instead, maybe they come back way later after the bug has reached production or something like that to actually try and like fix it. Because in the moment, they're just so used to being correct, that they don't have the muscle memory to like double check. If that happens enough, then it's training data that keeps saying, oh, people didn't fix this after I suggested it. So it must be correct. And then it starts thinking that incorrect things are correct in correct amount of the time. It gets overconfident in its suggestions because it's not getting the reinforcement of, oh no, people edited this like right after I suggested it. So maybe that one wasn't correct. I think that is a pretty advanced application of ML. And GitHub Copilot, for example, at least the way it started, was not doing any of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is strictly looking at code on GitHub that Uh already exists and predicting the next token from that code or from that training data. Nowhere in there is learning from the users. Now, my vague understanding is that they have started to do that because they they get stats back on how often these suggestions were taken. Right. I think the way you combat that is lean more heavily on correctness measures, which we already have lots of experience with in the software world. So you have unit tests, you have integration tests, there's mutation testing. Oh, sure, yeah. And you have coverage-guided fuzzing and you, lots and lots of ways to check if your code is correct. Yeah. And we have all these correctness measures that we can build up. And sure, there is going to be some set of bugs that slip through all of those correctness measures. But I'm going to hypothesize that the category of things that could slip through that came from a machine are approximately the same category of things that could slip through that came from a human in the first place. Yeah, the way I like to think about tools like this, or at least in the future, I'm actually currently intentionally not using any of them for reasons I'll talk about in a second. But I like to think about it as a contribution to your repository from someone you don't know. So you don't have any reason to like, you know, necessarily trust them. Because I mean, really, it's an amalgamation of code from people you don't trust. Uh, So trusting it would be risky. So you should review it. But at the end of the day, if you do get a contribution from a random person you don't know, what are you going to do? You're neither going to say, I will blindly trust this and be like, yes, merge the PR, you know, all the tests pass. You probably will actually like look at it and review it. But also at the same time, you won't also say like, yeah, I don't personally know this person. I don't trust them. So I'm just going to reject the pull request. So yeah, I mean, you need to check the work. But at the end of the day, if you're able to check it successfully, does it matter that it came from a human or a computer? Hopefully not. But the thing that does worry me is that we haven't seen the, I'll call it a hypothesis that this is legal tested in Mm -hmm. courts yet. Yes. If a Supreme Court decision comes back and says, yeah, that's copyright infringement. And also like, so any code that you wrote using ChatGPT or or, uh, using uh, Copilot is infringing someone else, some large number of people's copyrights. Now, maybe it'll come out that it's like, no, this is fine. This is fair use. Like, or it's, you know, sufficiently derivative. I don't know. Like, I'm not a lawyer, so I have no idea how it's going to shake out. I just know that it's an open question that has not been tested in court yet. Even in the case where a high court comes down very hard on this is copyright infringement. I think the the maximal blowback on people who are using this tool is cases that already would have been considered copyright infringement if you had been looking at the project it came from in one tab and then writing code in the other tab. <laughs> could be, yeah. That very, that very well could be. It reminds me to some extent of the early days of music sharing, I guess, where a lot of people were sharing stuff illegally There were a couple of people who got sued for that, but it was really just like a very small number of people who were doing a ton of it. There were just way too many people doing it for them to like try and sue everyone. So I don't know if that's cover (laughs) to some extent for others. Hard to say. Absolutely review the suggestions that come back from any AI system. And (laughs) yeah, if something is unique enough in the training data set and you get it to divulge that blurb of code and they're well-documented cases where this happens, that is definitely on you. Or, you know, if that makes it into the code base and you didn't realize that that was code that came from some other project. Yeah. Now, the question is, how do you detect that? I think right. that's much more of a problem if you're using Copilot in the way that it is maximally helpful, unfortunately. Yep, uh, very where true. Where you have a, a well-defined task and it's likely that task is so well-defined that it's likely that... Someone's done either, it before. Well, once someone has done it before and not many people have done it before. Because many people have done it before, they all kind of get smeared together. And just like a human developer, having looked at 20 different implementations of sort, I don't think you could 
if you have in the past month reviewed 20 different implementations of sort and you close all those and you start to write your own, I am not a lawyer. Do not take my <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah, neither of us are lawyers. We don't know what we're talking about yeah. legally. <laughs> uh, but it, it seems to me that if you base your code on things that you've learned from many different past examples, I can't imagine there's a way that can be copyright infringement or be considered copyright infringement. Yeah, um, that and, would surprise me too. And the cases that I mostly use Copilot day to day are cases where there probably isn't something in the training set. And so it's having to infer what I mean. And it's less accurate. It generates less code based on that. But yeah. it's good enough in autocomplete-like scenarios that you know I have this pattern of match statements uh, f- doing roughly the same thing for every element. And it's pretty good at guessing what I mean when I have three examples already written. Nice. I think that's, in my mind, honestly, like where it feels most helpful. But I appreciate that if I were writing a different type of code, that would be vastly different. In one form or another, this is going to impact, obviously, there's like the super long term where it's like somewhere between five and 500 years from now, you know, this is like how all programming is, all programming is just going to be a conversation with an AI. But with that in mind, like clearly there's going to be a short term before we get to that point in which AI assisted editor experiences are going to become more and more powerful and like more and more a part of like everyone's daily software experience. The question is just like, what's it going to look like? And how do you adjust your workflows to accommodate that? And certainly reviewing code more, like spending more time reviewing code is definitely going to be a part of that. And I actually think that's, leads into an interesting topic that we almost went on a tangent on earlier, but which I'll bring back, which is uh, indentation sensitivity. And I bring Mm -hmm. this up specifically in the context of a higher percentage of your time that you spend reviewing code, which is to say reading code with an intent to very clearly understand and quickly understand what it's doing and and having Mm -hmm. an accurate mental model of what it's doing becomes percentage-wise more and more important. Now, I know that some people will say, well, actually, like the really important thing is that you have really good tools for understanding what your code's doing. It doesn't have to be just reading. Like you could, for example, have more and more advanced tools to like try exercising the code in different ways and playing with it in different ways, which don't get me wrong, I think is totally valuable too. However, one of the cool lessons from like Edward Tufte and like data visualizations is that being able to just look at something and only use your eyes and your brain can be a very efficient way of building a mental model of something if you're able to do that. Now, this is granted only effective for sighted users. If you don't have the ability to look at something and like actually get data from that, then you need a totally different you know, user experience. However, if you do have the ability to do that, it's really advantageous to be able to like do that successfully as opposed to needing to interact, which can be a lot slower, even if it can potentially help you, under, you know, get a more accurate mental model. And the reason this pertains to indentation sensitivity is, of course, this is a case where I think a lot of people like to hand wave away syntax and parsing and, and all those considerations as like, oh, it's just how the code looks. But at the end of the day, like that's quite impactful how the code looks. Like you can have code that looks like it does one thing, but actually does something else. And that distortion of your mental model can cost you a lot of time. Indentation sensitivity, I think, is interesting in that it's controversial in some cases. A lot of people are just like, it's fine. I don't care. Either way is, either way is good with me. And then some people are like, I hate it. And some people are like, I love it. But I think one of the interesting things that it does give you a trade-off of is in some cases, it can reduce visual noise and just make it so that your brain has less to process. You can just glance at the code and there are these braces that you know, are redundant with the indentation. And so you just don't have the braces. But in other cases, I've definitely used, I guess, mainly CoffeeScript in this case, where it can be hard to tell where something that's like a multi-screen length, like where things begin and end, and that can become a problem depending on what the the indentation is actually denoting. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this, because we talked about this a little bit on Zulip around like indentation sensitivity and like rock and in other languages. And like, I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts on it? I'm going to zoom back a little bit. Um, so first of all, I also have the exact same problem when writing and reading Rust code sometimes that it's not indentation okay. sensitive. If there's right. a gigantic match statement inside a function, inside an impl block, uh, which of those closing braces is the one for the match and which of those is the... <laughs> Um, fair point. Fair point. So yeah, you do have the advantage that there is a token that your editor can jump you to and say, "Okay, that is that exact token right there is the place that you need to start writing your code." Right. But without that help, uh, it's it's sometimes pretty hard to to understand. 
To be fair, an editor that's aware of the indentation concept and like where the blocks are could do the same thing, just like without the token, in the sense that you can have like the background highlighted different colors or like different like zebra stripes or something like that. And then be like, okay, I'll click on this is the one that I want. This is the block that I want. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. the editor that I use day to day, or in fact, both editors I use day to day, VS Code and Sublime Text, do indentation markers on the, the margin. Yeah. And that I find only marginally helpful, to be honest. Uh-huh. So that's kind of perspective one. I think the problem is not unique to indentation sensitive languages. That anytime you yeah. have a big long block of code, that just becomes hairy. Yeah. The second kind of zoom out point here is talking more broadly about code formatting and understandability. I think there's been a couple of interesting examples that I think are would be that I find particularly compelling. Okay. Of unusual styles that seem unusually helpful. And I think these are fun to talk about because I actually don't agree with either of them and I don't really like either of them, but <laughs> I still find their points compelling. Uh, Fair so, enough. Okay. So these, two, these two cases that I'm thinking about are the code defunds compiler. It's the, the APL compiler that somebody wrote in APL. It's some dialect of APL. Uh, so very compact language. And oh, this right, right, yeah. was written in such a way that you can print it on, I forget the exact number, but it's like seven pages, seven, eight and a half by 11 pages. And that is the, okay. the entirety of the compiler. <laughs> All right. And the the person who was buying this was I, I was watching a YouTube video about it, and they were describing that their workflow for the, like, most software developers would consider this absolutely insane, right? You're you have what usually would be many many pages and many different files of say the parser is sure, all yeah. all shrunk into one approximately eight and a half by eleven page, yeah, and. But this person uh, is able to, the, the main advantage of that is you can have the entire context of everything you need to know for the parser in one pane in your editor, and the entire context of everything you need to know about you know, the next stage of compilation in the second pane in your editor. And jumping back and forth between things is just moving your eyeballs, right? Yeah. There's no scrolling, there's no go-to definition, there's no... Uh, any of that. And so as long as you have a very good workflow, you can have a much faster workflow. I can see why that sounds compelling. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think I would ever format my code like that just because, I don't know, maybe it's a, a background thing. That Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, in order to do that, I imagine you have to do a lot of things like, you know, single letter or single character variable names, which are maybe symbols in some cases. Absolutely. Right? And APL is incredibly yeah. compact compared to right. other languages. But like to me, I think an unspoken cost there is like when you look at that, are you able to just directly map from that to the correct concept? Or do you, is there a translation step that has to happen where you're like, right, T is short for time. And in this case, that's the time. Like, I mean, T, T for time is maybe a common easy one. But if it's like, right, what is J for again? Okay, J is this. Okay, now load that into my mind. And it's like, it's like you have a sim link for everything where you have to like, First, go remember what the single letter stands for, and then that's the helpful name that maps to the actual concept, as opposed to having the actual concept like written out in in a in a word that just directly maps. Or in other words, naming is hard because names are valuable, and if you're just restricting yourself to like really really compact names, they're going to be less helpful and therefore less valuable. I would analogize this to Arabic arithmetic syntax: x squared plus three x plus plus five. Uh -huh. equals zero rather than writing out this paragraph of text you know, describing you know, take the number and multiply it by itself and then add the number times five <laughs> and, and so on that having things much more compact it's not a fundamentally different representation but so long as you have already built up the context in your head of what all those pieces mean and you understand how to to manipulate those the actual manipulation becomes a lot easier versus trying to wade through this paragraph of text. Yeah, now I totally buy that when it comes to super common operations. Like in math, you have superscripts for exponents. That comes up a lot. You have you know addition, subtraction, those come up all the time. But as soon as you get into things like, okay, now we have a whole library ecosystem and like every library has a bunch of functions in it and you don't use all of them all the time. And so in fact, some of them you only use once. 
well, okay, like, what do you call those? Do you insist on like single letter names for all of those functions? Is that still going to serve you well? What if your whole program is a whole lot of calls to functions that you only use once or twice? <laughs> and, and I think the answer there is ultimately either editor support, language support, and or AI assistance. Uh, and so going through those one by one, the editor support, I think, is if you can have your editor automatically fold and unfold things into simpler names, that that's a potential solution here. So you, the actual underlying name is this big, long descriptive thing, but then you can quickly choose to compactify all of the definitions. Yeah. Language support, I think, looks something like in, in the language itself, you have the ability to define aliases for things, to have things with multiple different names. I know Unison, for example, can do this, I think. Yep. Um, I and that's true. Switching between those names then becomes a lot easier. And potentially with editor support, you can you know, hover over a name and see the expanded version or take an expression that is compactified and have the editor quickly rewrite it in line to be all the expanded versions or vice versa. Yeah. And then the AI support, I think, is along the, the lines of, from this context, you, you, training a model to tell you what each thing means. And I think that last bit is much more relevant when you're, say, reading a machine learning paper or a math paper, and they have some big equation in there. You're like, okay, what was Q dot here? And right. looking through the rest of the text, math is bad in that way, and, and ML papers are bad that way because the definition semantics are so loose uh, that I th don't think you really have that problem in, uh, or at least not so much in programming languages. You know, something that, that might be potentially interesting is I, I wonder about going the other way around where the source code is actually quite, you know, verbose and descriptive relative to the like APL super compact version. But then you have, you know, to use a projection of that where mm -hmm. things become compactified. And the purpose there is just to try and let you have as much on one screen as possible. And maybe if you have these sort of localized versions of things, you could get away with something like, for example, shrinking the identifiers using like ellipses and say like, instead of read file, it's like, R dot 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 F. And that's like three characters because the dot 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 is like one character mm -hmm. Unicode. Like maybe that's enough. I don't know. But I mean, something I wonder, it would be interesting, you know, this is one of the many experiments that will probably never actually happen, but <laughs> it would be cool to watch two people who were both trained in like, you know, APL and like super compact style and also a more traditional, like full variable names, mm -hmm. no restrictions on, on compactness. And give one group of those people like the APL code, the super compact code fits on a page and then give the other group the non-compact version and just see how quickly they can solve the problems because that would account for things like, okay, on the one hand, you have the advantage of being able to switch back and forth or not have to switch as much and not have to jump around as much. But on the other hand, you potentially have to do more mental translation steps and how do those balance out? Yeah. And that is certainly something that requires training. The, yeah. Not something you just pick up overnight. Right. <laughs> Another thing I would point out with with APL is that it's not just the identifiers that are compactified; it's the operations themselves are incredibly terse. Right. right. Doing addition over all of the elements in a list is, I want to say, just one more character than doing addition of two numbers in APL. Right. You literally insert a period. Yeah. Because before or after the the plus sign. Right. So I, that, from what little I've seen of APL, it kind of reminds me of like Vim commands where you have these mm -hmm. like things that can be sort of like combined together in interesting ways. Yep. So the other example that I wanted to bring up here is with uh, Jeremy Howard. And uh, he's the, the creator of the Fast AI course uh, that anyone looking to get into machine learning these days, I would highly recommend. Mm -hmm. They have lectures available on YouTube. The thing that I find interesting about his style is that he is very intentional about where, how things are written out on a line. And mm. for example, in, in Python, it's very, very unusual to see a semicolon. In Python, semicolons work more or less like new lines. You can have mm. a function written out provided you don't need any indented blocks, you can have a function written out that just has semicolons between all of your line, you know, what would be statements rather mm -hmm. than new lines. Mm -hmm. And in all of the Python code that I have looked at outside of Jeremy Howard's, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe one in a hundred, one in a thousand files will have a semicolon somewhere. But yeah. it's, it's very, very rare. 
he's very intentional about using that in other quirks of syntax and you know other flexibility that the syntax has to do things like if you have a long sequence of operations and many of those operations have a statement that has to come after it you know you're having trouble thinking of an example off on top of my head, but you, you do A, and that means you need to increment your pointer by one. And then uh-huh. you do B, you increment your pointer by one. Um, he'll write that in a way that the, the A and then the pointer increment are on one line. And I B and the pointer increment are on the next line. Because uh, they go together and like should... They go together. Yeah. And should never delete you, one, but not the other. <laughs> yep. And, and the pointer increments are all aligned. So there's enough spaces between forget whether you put it before or after the semicolon such that the, the pointer increments are all aligned. And then... Ah, so you'd see you if ever, one was missing. Exactly. You can see if one is missing. And if it's intentionally missing, you can say, you know, in place of the pointer increment, you if that same column, you put a comment yeah. that says, you know, hey, intentionally missing here. Nice. Uh, and thing, things like that where you're you're taking your, your problem space and being very intentional about how you're writing that I think in theory can pay dividends. I, I like that argument. I think if I learned how to do that well, I could probably you know, perform X percent better or whatever. Yeah. But that's also a very challenging style to to jump into since I have this background of wanting my code always formatted the right way for some right. uh, you know on high definition of the right way. Yeah, I buy that. Like I there's definitely advantages to be had from being intentional about how you format your code. And I think there is in a lot of cases tension between that and code formatters that want to make code look consistently formatted. Yep. Personally, I generally tend to err on the side of I like code formatters. <laughs> but that is something that you give up. I think one good example of that is in general just like aligning code for profit. So that's one example of how you can do that. There's actually quite a few other examples that I can think of. One that comes immediately to mind is when you have something that's like you're trying to make a matrix, for example, and you've got like a a list of lists or an array of arrays or something like that. And what you're hoping to do is to have make sure that they have the same number of rows and columns. And if you can align them, that's very visually obvious if you've made a mistake and like missed one somewhere. (laughs) That's a very simple strategy for preventing errors. But if you don't have the ability to align those, then you kind of miss out on that. That's like the difference between trying to edit a table in Markdown and trying to edit a table in a WYSIWYG you know, HTML editor. Yeah, that's another good example. <laughs> you know, I can imagine like ways to like try to increase complexity of your code formatter by saying like, well, just in this section, you know, turn off the formatter uh, in order to enable things like that. But I don't know that that's that's a that's a whole Pandora's box. Which I'm, I'm not sure is a good idea to open. <laughs> I think there's a lot of possibility there in having not necessarily the most advanced you know, GitHub Copilot models doing code formatting, but there was a paper, I want to say five years ago or so, that looked at code formatting as a machine learning problem. It's a pretty simple machine learning problem, actually. Mm-hmm. They looked at where do you insert new lines and to what level do you indent each token? Okay. And the thing the model is predicting is binary yes or no, do I insert a new line after each token, and an indent guide for a given token. And that indent guide can be previous line plus one. That's like you know one of the enums that you have in, in an indent guide. Or yeah. it could be a specific token on the next line that you're wanting to align it to. And then you train this model on, on large amounts of data, and it's able to do things like very, very cleanly format SQL code that and switch to your next language and format that nicely like the you know yeah. all of the other examples and this was by no means a complicated model this was not a transformer or anything this was i think just linear regression or something like that but things like that can give you a lot more flexibility and freedom in looking at things in the way that you want yeah that makes sense i think there's another interesting potential route to go there, which is again, bringing it back to projectional editing is if you have a really concise, easy way to say like, I've got an editor that supports making plugins really easily, which is definitely something I want to do in, in, in rock eventually. If you've got that ability to really easily write a sort of like projection of your code, then like in the matrix example, for example, you can actually just say like, oh, we'll just display this as an actual matrix and like let you edit it as an actual matrix. Or in that example with like the, you know, the pointer increments and stuff like that, maybe you can have a concept of like, here is a unit of do some work and then increment a pointer or 
say if I want to skip incrementing the pointer, and maybe you can just display them as that, and then you know have it be like a little check mark if it's incrementing the pointer, and like a, an X if it's not, or something like that. But there's this whole sort of design space that I think we don't really consider because it's generally speaking a lot of work to write something like that. Like imagine doing that in like VS Code. It's like no, no one would do that because that's just an inordinate amount of work for the benefit it would get you. I think there are two problems there. Number one is that, yeah, there's a lot of work in building editor plugins like that right now. And there's yeah. probably ways that uh, that can be made easier. Uh, number two, I think, is just that there's a huge long tail of problems like this that somebody wants to format their code this way. And taking that pointer increment example, like, are you going to have a, a pointer increment plugin that somebody has developed and you know thousands of people use? Maybe, but you know, I, I don't my think gut so. feel there is is probably that is a tiny handful of developers who are working on one specific project who like that, and it might just totally. be a single developer. Yeah, um, and but, uh, it it might even need to be specific to this one block of code. I would like formatted this way. Please. Yeah, but I think I mean my stated goal is that developing a plugin for the Rock Editor would be as easy as developing a function. It's like writing a function and writing a plugin is like the same amount of work. And like, this is kind of where abilities come from is like, it's, it's, it's as easy as adding a particular ability to a particular type. Now that's a plugin done. You just need to write the like, you know, render function, like just implement it. If you have that. The, the just is, is doing a lot of work in that sentence, but yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of work that has to happen to make that a reality. But if that reality were to come about, then I would like to think that I would write bespoke plugins just for me all the time because it's just not that much more work than, for example, writing a test. Something I've done in the past, and I actually suggested this to Anton for the editor, we have a bunch of tests like this, is I wrote a little DSL for myself for writing tests that essentially assign different characters, different meanings. So I could write out a string of like, in this case, it was for um, something about like uh, the Anton used it for tests around, I think, uh, selections. So it's like square bracket mm. means like a start or end of the selection, depending on which way the bracket's facing. And then you have mm -hmm. like X's in between for highlighted stuff and like, you know, spaces for non-highlighted stuff. And basically you can just write out all these edge cases in a string and it becomes visually pretty easy to look at it and be like, oh, okay, I can kind of see where the highlighting is and ends and like in these different scenarios. Yep. But that's like a very crude, I'm using like ASCII art basically, you know, to approximate like a, a real like visualization. But if something like that were just super easy to implement, like with graphics, I would certainly rather have like implement the, the test that way. And I think you can extend that analogy to just like a normal editing experience where like formatting is to some extent in the ways that we're describing it is somewhat of like the ASCII art equivalent where it's like, well, I want to say that this is like a matrix and should look like a matrix, but lining up the rows and columns is like good enough. It's, it's like, it'll do that. But like, what if I could actually represent it as a matrix? Okay, maybe in that particular example, it's like not that much better <laughs> to be able to like represent it as an actual matrix. But I can imagine cases where having access to formatting, yeah, maybe that is like a quick and dirty and like reasonable way to do it. And it would be a little bit faster to implement than like a plugin. But maybe if I had the ability to do the plugin really quickly, I could make something that's even better than the like code formatting version. But I don't think that's uh, been explored historically. Talking specifically about this, like pointer increments example. I think the challenge there will be like, yes, you can write a plugin that lets a user say, put uh, something aligned on the next line and keeps two logical columns in a table. Where do you store that? Uh, and how yeah. do you recover that state later when the user has saved and reloaded? Or maybe they've saved, somebody has made changes remotely and then they're reloading. Great question, yeah. There's a point of tension there because one possible answer is it should be stored somehow. I'm going to hand wave here somehow in the source code, like maybe in a comment with a special formatting or whatever. If you store it in the comment, then now that is persisted when you commit your changes and share it with your teammates. Now they get that same state. So you don't want to store everything in there because that means that every single time someone like changes a, you know, a checkbox for how they want the thing displayed. Now that's a new commit, right? That's a commit diff. And you don't want that every single time. But on the flip side, if you store everything transiently locally, then you have no ability to say, well, no, I actually want to leave this part of the code in this state so that the next person who comes along sees what I'm seeing. It's actually quite important that they do that. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer there, but it's also definitely, you're right, it's, like, it's not a trivial problem to solve, I don't think. And I think that will be particularly important for some, I don't know if it's a large fraction, but a very interesting fraction of this long tail of problems will have 
something of that flavor that's very non-trivial. That's a very non-trivial design decision. Okay, of like, okay, how do we communicate this around our team? Yeah, because I think there's three three sort of pieces of uh, levels of persistence that you care about. One is I want this to be in the source code and committed. Another is I want it local on my machine, but I don't want it to be committed, which then runs into the question of, okay, but what happens when you change branches? Do you still want, you know, like how do you even like connect that up with, you know, what was there before? That's an interesting question. And then the third state is I want this to be completely transient. As soon as I switch branches or like exit my editor, I want you to just forget about this. I don't want it to come back to my previous one. So specifying where things are stored from an editor API perspective, I don't think that's particularly tricky from an API perspective to say like, okay, there's three categories of persistence. Which one do you want? <laughs> those are your three options. But there's a lot of rabbit holes within each of those. I guess the transient one's kind of easy, but but maybe not even because how do you detect when the user has switched branches? For example, does the editor need to have like deep awareness of Git in order to like throw things away at the right time? Is an interesting question. Does the parser automatically start having to parse some arcane logic in comments? or some arcane language in comments to recover this structure. Yeah, I actually don't know if that's that complicated. I mean, I guess it could be, but I'm, I'm actually less worried about that. Like the question of like, what's the storage format? Because I think there's like some tricks you could do. For example, you could just kind of like have at the end of the file, there's a section that's just like, it's all like begins as comments, but it's just like, this is data for the editor. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so it doesn't it doesn't have to like you know jam up the entire file it can just be like you know down there at the end for example but i think there's a variety of ways you can go with that and you can also have like special syntax like you know pound star means like this is editor metadata and like nobody is like just writing pound star left and right you know normally or, like pound tilde or something like that uh whatever you could pick some syntax that's like not something that users would like accidentally you know <laughs> make use of then I think you still have to worry about the people who don't want to use the editor for whatever reason and just using their text editor and that it doesn't look super hairy for them. Yeah, which I think honestly, like throwing it all at the end is like kind of a pretty reasonable way to do that, especially if it's like you're probably going to have some sort of syntax highlighting or, or something for your editor. And like maybe you could also have a like, I'm just going to hide all that <laughs> because I don't care about it. We never actually finished the significant indentation thread. <laughs> so yes. you mentioned that like, you think you made the good point that braces don't save you necessarily from scrolling around and like losing your place in like what's going on, uh, which is something I hadn't considered. It's a good point. I don't know. What, what's your personal take on that? Like, do you, are you like pro, uh, anti, or like ambivalent? I used to really hate indentation sensitive languages. Uh -huh. I think that was more of a the background that I came from kind of thing rather than mm. a, like a familiarity well thing. thought out argument of you know why this is bad i see so like this this is unfamiliar and so like uncomfortable yeah yeah and other people will you know that came from similar backgrounds could easily have a similar reaction to that and that that's 100 valid that's you know one one design token for your language you know is whether you want to to have users used to those algal like languages i think uh that have the the curly braces see Programmers used to see your JavaScript or whatever, uh, or R Rust, you know, coming into your language and being blindsided by, okay, where does my block end? How does the, the compiler know that, you know, I'm done with my else statement? That's a little bit of an education problem. And I think the popularity of Python probably means that that's not a huge problem anymore. Yeah. I think Python's pretty definitively proven that, like, a lot of people are fine with this or even like it. <laughs> yep. I think the parts of indentation sensitivity that have bitten me are things like pasting code and either accidentally not remembering, getting something wrong about the indentation level, you know, either pasted it too high of an indentation or too low of an indentation. And then if it's a very long block of code or it's pasted into a very long block, um, that might be non-trivial to figure out like, okay, what did I actually mean there? Whereas if you have braces, you paste in your code, you don't care about the indentation, and then the formatter fixes it up for you. So you kind of right. have these, these two different indications of scope that you can, as you mess one up, and then you can let the other one save you. Uh, and hmm. potentially you could go the other way. You know, if you're missing a brace, you can look at indentation. And I think there are probably systems that do this to determine where that missing brace probably is. 
Yeah, there probably are. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So, so there's a redundancy argument. Yeah. It's a backup <laughs> in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. The counter argument of like, because it's redundant, it's noise. And like, why don't we just take it out and, and give your brain less to look at is also compelling to me. <laughs> I think you could say exactly the same thing of let's edit it out in the editor view. Sure. The yeah. Editor view just omits just hides the closing, it. you know, or the, the curly braces around a, a block or whatever. Right. Which actually, I mean, from that perspective kind of brings us full circle on like, yeah, there's, there's actually two ways you could do it. This is really just kind of a representation thing. On the one hand, you could have the editor omit the braces for you, or you could have the braces be omitted in the what's on the disk. And then the editor infers where braces would be and then gives you some visual indication of where they are. Yes, Both so are possible. You, you have the source code on the disk in indentation style. The editor is kind of transparently behind your back adding tokens for indicators you know, yeah. <laughs> indicators of scoping they don't necessarily even have to be visible and right. then you you paste in your code that's poorly indented and it looks at all of those indicators to determine what you did now if, yeah. if you're just pasting in a projectile editor i don't think that's actually a problem because it knows exactly where you paste it and knows the the indentational yes. level there that would be the hope <laughs> i think most of most of my thoughts these days on software are where does ai and software go uh-huh. I, I'm kind of in the camp of the industry will look very, very different in 10 years than it does now, uh, and probably much more different than it looked 10 years ago. Very plausible. And thinking about how do we adapt to that, and how does do, do developers have jobs in 20 years or whatever? Yeah. Or is that just a thing you put your data into an AI model? So I started working on Rock in 2018. And at the time, I was asking myself the same question. Is it worth making a new programming language in 2018? Or is it like five, 10 years from now, programming is just going to look like talking to an AI and like nobody cares about your language anymore? Well, it's 2023. So it's been about five years now. And programming still looks like 99% the same as it did back then. I don't think there's any question that it will happen eventually. But I think there's a big question around like specifically what's the timeline. And it's worth remembering that like people have thought that like artificial general intelligence is a couple decades away since like was like the 50s, maybe even like it's definitely something that is prone to chronic underestimation of how soon it will arrive. We can may agree with or disagree with, but (laughs) anything that is on an exponential curve. um, Sure. It's yeah. Uh, it looks like it is not making enough progress until all of a sudden it's making way more progress than you thought it would. Totally true. Yeah. There's a legit question of, is this an exponential curve? Where, if so, where are we on that curve? Are we going to hit a ceiling? You know, is this a, an actual exponential or is it an S curve? Right. Uh, and you know, maybe we're most of the way past the hump on the S curve. Could be. There are a lot of unknowns around that, but I guess like, uh, Kind of the bet that I made is that like, I think we're still in the underestimating phase (laughs) and we'll see how how right I end up being. (laughs) I agree that making a new language is useful, but I don't think that's necessarily tied up with, you know, will everybody just be using Python via Copilot in 10 years or whatever. Okay. So that's a fair and like separate question. If the computer can write Python so well that you basically can just talk to it and not actually need to like have an editor or even understanding of what Python is. At that point, you can just cut out the middleman and just have it write machine code and you don't need to have a language. You can just have the languages you talk to the computer and tell it what you want. Abstractions are still useful even for AI systems. But the question is like at that point, do you want a completely different set of abstractions that don't really have any relation to modern programming languages? And Probably the answer is yes. And there's like some transition period. But at the end of the day, like a lot of, I think, what's been driving the sort of like explosion in like software engineering, not only jobs, but also just like interests and like value created by software has been the fact that a whole lot of what people do, especially in businesses, can benefit from software. It's like if you have a pen and a piece of paper and that's all you have to run your business, someone can make software that can make your business run a lot better in a whole big variety of ways, pretty much no matter what business it is. Not not 100%, but, but just pretty close to it. So historically, the way that that value has been created for people who are doing that type of work is that pro- people called programmers like you and me, <laughs> 
write that software. But maybe there's a, a plausible future, and I think it's the most likely future, where eventually the business owner just says, I don't actually need a person called a programmer. I just, this is a thing my computer does. I just talk to it and I say, uh, hey, computer, here are my needs as a business owner. I need help with this thing. And it's like, sure, I'll help you out with that. And it just writes some programs and then executes them. And then the business owner is like, thank you very much, computer. I appreciate that. But of course, at some point, there become things that are so complicated that expertise in talking to computers becomes valuable. And like, you know, what, what we might consider today being like a, if I'm a sole proprietor of a business, like I run a, a store, being quote unquote tech savvy today means things like I know how to use spreadsheet software or something like that. In the future, it might be like being tech savvy might mean I know the right way to talk to computers so that, you know, I, I don't end up with like weird edge cases that it didn't think to tell me about or like kind of assumed that I was taking care of. And maybe the computers can get better and better at like helping ask probing questions and whatnot. But, you know, that's. At some point, you have super intelligence, and, and who knows what happens beyond that. <laughs> I, I think even ignoring the the question of is this super intelligence, or you know, or are we on? I guess that's a debate that I don't really want to get into. Um, that, that's a whole big rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very popular debate right now. Uh, mm-hmm. But even ignoring that, I think there's there are lots there's lots of room for improvement in very very obvious ways in current AI systems. Yes, uh, that takes not a huge amount of engineering uh, and takes you know, some hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially in in training new models. <laughs> so right, n- very non-trivial, uh, but yeah. well within the scope of you know spending as much training a model as you would spend on hiring a developer for a year in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And we're in the realm of even if you need a fancy custom model for the thing that you're trying to do and you just can't do it with GPT-3 or whatever, uh, it's if it's just a developer salary away to get a custom model to, to do what you want, I, I think that's an interesting point to be at where you can do something. Yeah, like, very- like some problems you can try you know, rubbing some AI on it and you might get like, it's, it's like very expensive, but you might get a better result than trying to, you know, hire someone or, or, or pay someone to do it. That, right. that I don't think was true five years ago. It's at least not as far as I know, uh, at least if, if it was true, it wasn't like public knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I, I think all of this stuff have, has been pretty recent. Uh, yeah. 20, but there is a separate question of like, you know, so large language models, like, like chat GPT and so forth essentially are, you know, the meme is like, it's just, it's like super fancy autocomplete. There's a limit to what that's capable of. And there's a question of like, what's the delta between what they can do now and like the maximum that they're capable of before you kind of need another breakthrough to do better? I don't know. I think this is too far outside of my like domain expertise to, to be able to say. So I think there are two glaring problems with the current models. Uh, okay. And those are, uh, they have fixed amounts of comp- uh, computation in any step. So mm-hmm. ChatGPT for every token that it spits out it's doing you know, so many billions of floating operations, and that's it. If the thing that you're trying to get it to do would require more than that, uh, it's not going to be correct. Like It's physically impossible for it to, to come up with a correct answer if it needs more computation than it has. Uh, the other problem is training data that data on the internet sucks, and it's full of lies <laughs> and sarcasm and uh, right. other things that will lead you astray and you know, software with bugs in the context of yep, um, sure. Copilot. And I think with current models, it's fairly simple to do or in principle, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not working on this stuff currently. Yeah. It seems like it ought to be fairly simple to start to clean that up. And there, there are people actively working on that. And I think that can get you really far and then adding new context to models like one chat GPT when it's generating Python to do XYZ. The only thing it knows about are things that were, it was trained on originally. Right. And it knows about things that are in its context window of 2000 or 4,000 characters. And it doesn't know, for example, how to look up the, the doc strings of all the methods that it could possibly call to, to implement your thing. Right. 
and you know, use that to infer what it should be calling. That third problem, which was, I guess, this list is growing, uh, but uh, <laughs> that, that problem is actively being worked on. I think that is something yeah. that will be more or less solved in a couple of years. That it, it's kind of fairly, it will be fairly simple soon to mm-hmm. have the model have all the context that it needs. Because that that's just a simple engineering problem. Yeah. But then the question becomes like, you know, how much better does that get it? Right. And, and so one possibility is that now it's like, wow, this is just like really, really incredible and, and like really dramatically changes what the industry looks like. Or it might be like now Copilot is 10% more useful. I think it's just it's hard to predict what the threshold is for it being a really huge industry game changer, like more than it is today, because depending on like what you do inside the industry, it might already be a huge game changer for you. But like the industry as a whole, I think certainly we can say is not like upended right now today. <laughs> it has not been. Yep. But the threshold is like, do the incremental changes get you to the industry is upended? Or does that require another unrelated breakthrough, which might take who knows how many years? I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. Irrespective of upending the whole industry, I think <laughs> most software these days, or most software development, at least in my experience, is some fraction of boilerplate. And you know, probably sure. there is job to job what fraction of boilerplate that is. There are tasks that I do on a day-to-day basis that are 90% boilerplate and very little actual critical thinking of what I'm doing. (laughs) Sure. If someone, insofar as someone's job is currently composed of 90% writing boilerplate, uh, I think that is immediately at threat in the next five years. Could be. Although there is also a question of like, it's not like the entire 90% drops away. It's that that 90% gets replaced by boilerplate review that a bot wrote. How much time does that take? It's not zero, because as previously discussed, if you just blindly trust what it gives you, you're going to have problems. <laughs> so what is it? And granted, that might be a different skill set, which is fair. So it might be that if that is what your job currently looks like, that maybe your skill set you know, needs to change. And also it might be that, yeah, you don't need as many people to do that. On the flip side, it's also true that historically, companies have been really struggling to find sort of like enough qualified developers. If the hiring market is still very in favor of candidates as opposed to companies like companies are historically have been still complaining about trying to hire enough qualified people. So maybe this lowers the bar on what it requires to have someone who is hired. And maybe this means that uh, companies aren't complaining about that anymore. And there's, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit harder to find a job, but maybe not automatically just like, oh, I, I just can't find any job because of this, this new AI thing. I don't know. The, the positive potential outcome here is this up levels everybody. And it just makes what any given developer can do either that much more impactful, or you can do the the work of end developers before, or you can reach new heights in terms of the types of problems you're able to tackle. Right. And in the the not terribly long term, I think there's a lot of potential for things like that that software rewrite project that we were wanting to do that's going to take many, many engineering hours. uh, Yeah. Lots and lots of fiddly details to get right. If we can just hand that off to an automated system and we have lots of tests around it, there are great, yeah. lots of documented ways on and, and well trodden territory on how to effectively do like an incremental rewrite and maintain functionality and all of that. And then the final result of that is your development team can go 20% faster because you don't have you know, bug category X. Right. That's a pretty fundamental change, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And probably in practice, what that means, like, you know, people worry about losing their jobs. But I mean, more likely what would happen is like a huge percentage of companies that employ software engineers are like on a very regular basis hiring more software engineers. And maybe that pace of hiring decreases. Or maybe if you have a layoff, you don't replenish to the same like previous high or something like that. But I would be kind of surprised if like AI resulted in like people losing their jobs, you know, immediately as opposed to just like the pace of growth slowing down of the job market. There are currently people trying to get a CS degree that will be in the job market in four years. Um, so I, yes. I don't know how comforting that is overall. That I Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's certainly a good point. I mean, there, there is a whole pipeline like behind that whole hiring thing. And like, I mean, I have a kid now. I don't think that I would be as eager to recommend, you know, just for like, career reasons. Like if he loves programming, like, yeah, go into programming. (laughs) 
But I mean, certainly like 10 years ago, it would be an unqualified, like, yeah, there's a gazillion jobs and like, who knows mm-hmm. when that's going to change. So yeah, go for it. Uh, now it's more of a like, well, it's it's not as like a uh, full throated of a recommendation from a strictly career perspective. But honestly, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think it's kind of better career advice in general to find something that's at the intersection of you like it and you can make a living at it anyway. <laughs> you like it and it's something that you're, you can be impactful at. Sure. Which I guess, you know, is hopefully required to make a living, but you never know. <laughs> there are a lot of jobs where you don't necessarily have to do a lot. That is fair. That is fair. Wow. Okay. We ended up starting on uh, syntax and formatting and ending <laughs> up at AI. This is awesome. Josh, thank you so much. This is a really fun conversation. I uh, really appreciate your taking the time. Yeah. Thank you. 